0: Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.
1: The Athletic.
2: Hello listeners, sorry to interrupt your show, but we've got a small favour to ask. We're currently doing a bit of a survey to find out more about you, your podcast listening habits and the sort of adverts that are most relevant to you. If you feel like helping, please head to surveymonkey.com slash r slash athletic audio UK. That's pretty catchy, so I'll say it one more time. Surveymonkey.com slash r slash athletic audio UK. Thank you.
3: Totally Football Show. Today, Champions League. And now their watch is ended. Ronaldo ensuring Piers wasn't the only man making a red-faced early exit on Tuesday. Wednesday, Messi following suit. We look back on a dramatic midweek with Liverpool, Portland and more. And then ahead to a big weekend in the Premier League. Moyes and West Ham at Man United and the North London derby. Will Kane hit a screamer? And is there any way to talk about Alex Lacazette? Much to discuss in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Warmest of welcomes to you, listener. It's Thursday the 11th of March, and with us we've got uh, ooh, Karen Carney. Hello, Karen.
4: Hello. You right.
3: right? I'm very well, thank you. Karen Carney, MBE, of course. Sasha is also on board. Hello, Sasha. One James. Fresh from taking the bins out and staring at a wall for two hours. More on that <laughs> shortly. Duncan Alexander completing the uh, trio. Hello. Hello. Do you know what's special about Thursday the 11th of March?
5: No. Go on, Sash. It's exactly a year since
3: Liverpool got knocked out by Atletico Madrid. <gasps> wow, that's interesting. And it's a year minus one from the day football was suspended. Uh, Thursday, the 12th of March 2020. When, do you remember, late on that evening, Arteta's positive Covid test led then to the Premier League deciding to suspend the weekend's fixtures and ultimately lockdown for the country, which otherwise had been sailing merrily, merrily onwards. Crikey. How different things were back then. That week in uh, 2020, Man United had just beaten Man City 2-0 and Chelsea had just taken Everton apart at Stamford Bridge. Curious, no?
4: That was funny. I was at the bridge the other day and that fixture happened, didn't it? Mm. And um, I was with Peter Drury and he was like, did you see the betting odds were still there from that game last year? And there was obviously players on there that weren't at both teams.
3: This was the kind of info up for the for the spectators at Stamford Bridge that had just been left there a year on.
4: Yeah, so you could obviously go and place your bets for that final game. That was the right. last game, I think, at the bridge before the lockdown and it was the exact same fixture. So we walked up and it was like first goal scorer for either team but there was a couple of players that have obviously moved on from both yeah. sides but it was quite um, it was quite weird.
3: Yeah, it's like, I don't know, like when they go down with those subs to the Titanic and they find menus and stuff. Mm.
6: There must be offices all across the country with stuff on whiteboards that's just paused and will never get enacted.
3: Totally towers very much.
5: It's a bit like a prepet in Chernobyl, you know, frozen in time for 40 years. Mm. Mm.
3: Tell you one thing that was different about this uh, week in March, Sasha, and that's the fact that Liverpool didn't get knocked out of the Champions League. I'm delighted to reveal to you. Let's have a quick check on the Champions League results before we get our teeth into them. A Tuesday, uh, they think it's Oliveira. It is now, as Sergio's free kick sealed, an epic clash between Porto and Juventus. 4-4 on aggregate, Porto threw on away goals. Meanwhile, late drama for Dortmund uh, after that severe comeback from 2-0 down, which almost forced extra time. Uh, Holland's brace and VAR meddling with The kind of space and time fabric, the other highlights there. On Wednesday, Barcelona's campaign ended in a 1-1 draw at Paris Saint-Germain. The Parisians winning thus 5-2 on aggregate. And Liverpool added another two goals to win their tie with RB Leipzig 4-0 across the two legs. All this means that for the first time since 2004-05, neither Lionel Messi nor Cristiano Ronaldo will be in the Champions League quarter-finals. But plenty of exciting players will... And we certainly had two great games a midweek. You, you might have enjoyed all four, I don't know. But uh, two really stood out. One was Porto on Tuesday against Juventus, that marathon affair in Turin. And the other one was Wednesday's uh, PSG Barcelona. So this was potentially Messi's last game for Barcelona. Obviously, there's major question marks over that. What what do you think he will feel about it?
5: I think he would love to strangle Dembele uh, for missing, I don't know, six, seven chances in the first half. They kept on opening up um, PSG's, uh, I think, right flank. And he went with his left, he went with his right, he shot across the keeper, he cut inside, and he missed them all. It was absolutely extraordinary. I think the, the first half performance from Barcelona was really powerful. I think both wings worked really well. But all those misses were glaring. And of course, Messi then misses a penalty as well. And for the second half, Barcelona just don't have it anymore. But I thought the first half performance from Barcelona was probably one of the best halves of football by a team we've seen you know, in a number of years, I think.
3: They were looking for another remontada, of course. And Daniel's story pointing out that in the first half alone, uh, they had the same number of shots as in that 6-1 in 2017. As you say, though, unfortunately, most of them fell to Dembele.
6: Yeah, sixteen shots in the first half, nine on target, ninety uh, percent pass completion. It was, it was kind of like the last great hurrah for Barcelona under Messi. And it it could have gone differently, you know. As Sasha said, they with better finishing, um, they could have been two or three up at half-time and that would have you know scared PSG I imagine. I mean obviously Messi came out with a lot of credit and his goal was you know he hit that so hard that the rage that went into it almost deformed the ball but then he missed a penalty. Um, only Sergio Aguero has missed as many penalties in the Champions League since 2003-04 as Messi. Um, you know obviously Ronaldo also gets tagged Penaldo on, on social media for taking a lot of penalties but you know, Ronaldo's taken 22 in the Champions League. Messi's taken 20, so it's not like Ronaldo has loads more. It's just he's sort of better at finishing them.
3: Mm. That was an extraordinary strike. Uh, Joe Cole in the BT Sports Studio saying he put violence on that ball. Had he scored just before half-time, or equally if, if Anthony Taylor and VAR hadn't given that questionable penalty against Barcelona, we, we, we might have seen it in the second half, do you think?
5: Well, well, given given PSG's past form for collapsing and given their, I would say, quite a cowardly approach to this game as well, perhaps with those collapses uh, in their mind, I, I think second half would have been on had he scored that penalty. I do have to say that both penalties were really weird. Um, I think, obviously, for for the PSG penalty, I think everyone agrees, you know, the player isn't getting there, Icardi isn't getting there. But for, for the Barcelona penalty just before half time, you know, both players kicking at the ball, which is up in the air. I don't think it was a penalty at all either. Uh, so it's a couple of uh, obviously strange decisions. But uh, I, think, I think that missed penalty, if anything, j- just really broke Barcelona psychologically.
3: I mean, they were still there in the second half. But as, as Duncan memorably put it, uh, every Barcelona corner looked like they had 11 goalkeepers up in the 93rd minute.
6: Yeah, I'm not a fan of all yellow away kits. I think that should be banned from football. It doesn't doesn't look right. But yeah, they had one one shot on target in the second half. and It did sort of peter out, and you know from the 70th minute on, really, it didn't. you, you kind of you know, the commentators were like, you know, they in the famous remontada, you know, the goals came really, really late, but it just never never felt like that, and. You know, I don't, I don't completely buy that this is Messi's last Champions League appearance for Barcelona. I can see, I can see him signing another one or two year contract and being back next season. But it does feel like, the, you know, the last real chance that he might have to win the Champions League. Um oh. I mean, we pointed out before a few weeks ago. He's, you know, he hasn't won the Champions League since he was twenty seven. Um, and if he'd have said that at the time that that would have been his final one, people would have laughed. But. That happens in football. If you'd have said to an Arsenal fan in 2004, you won't win the league again for many decades, possibly, they they would have laughed as well. So, you know, you never know when a full stop comes in football. You you can only tell in retrospect. And um, it's increasingly looking like that that was it for for Messi.
3: In life, Duncan. In life. Mm -hmm. Um, You were calling PSG cowardly, uh, Sasha, for their approach. It must be difficult, though, to know how to approach a 4-1 lead, Karen
4: yeah, no, it, it definitely is. But you, you know, the team you're up against, you've you've been there before. You've just got to be defensively organised and, and hard to beat. And um, I think that it's always the first goals are most important in that type of instance. So um, look, it wasn't, I'm sure, the best of performances that they would have liked. But at the end of the day, it's a results orientated business, and they're in the next, um, the next round, which is the most important thing for them.
3: Absolutely. Uh, one other thing, uh did you notice that a Paris Saint-Germain fan was arrested by police at five AM at the Barcelona team hotel after setting off the fire alarm. You don't think it was oh, Yeah, dear. I think it was, yeah. Mm. Mm. Anyway, all right, well that's Barcelona. Sasha.
5: I enjoyed the um the front page of L'Equipe today. Uh Le Messi Senavas. Um because I think Navas really did have a phenomenal half of football there. So I think uh, if anyone kept PSG in the game, there's probably the goalkeeper.
3: PSG through to the quarterfinals. Tuesday, meanwhile, the big upset, although it kind of wasn't, was Porto putting Juventus out. Juve actually winning 3-2 on the night, but it was 4-4 on aggregate, and Porto going through on away goals despite playing for over an hour with, with 10 men. Now, this result was 17 years to the day that Mourinho's Porto went through at Old Trafford. How far could this Porto go? Um,
6: well, I don't want to be captain. Let's wait for the draw. But we should probably wait for the draw, shouldn't we? I mean, I mean, the, the form Pepe showed was incredible for a, for a man of his age. And he, I mean, that was. I mean, obviously over the years he's got a reputation of a, as a bit of a cartoon villain. But his defending there was. It reminded me of a sort of veteran defender in an FA Cup tie against the top flight team, just you know, chucking himself in front of everything and. You know, you, it was amusing because you could see how it was winding Ronaldo up more and more as the game went on. I think there's not a metric for, je, you know, gesticulating during games, but I think Ronaldo might have broken it in that match. You know, a, lot of, uh, a couple of times, Morata or Chiesa were caught offside and, and <laughs> your eyes immediately drawn to Ronaldo at the bottom of the screen, just kind of violently turning away. And, you know, it, you can understand his frustration. He moved to Juve to win the Champions League and, and that's not going to happen.
3: Well, um, you can imagine Juve's frustration with Ronaldo equally. That's a a topic we'll come on to in a second. But, yes, all hail 38-year-old Pepe. What a player. Always loved him. And Porto in general. Conceição has now taken them into the quarterfinals twice in in three years, which, given that they sell all the players because they've got no money... (laughs)
6: Yeah, well, it's not even like they're a, a, a team full of young talent. So this was, the, I think, their second oldest uh, starting eleven they'd ever put out in the in the Champions League, which obviously is slightly bolstered by Pepe. But you know, they're they're a they're an effective team rather than a kind of you know team of glittering talents that's going to be picked off necessarily. So yeah, I mean, it's this is the this is the joy of cup football, this is what you know knockout football is about, and um, I'm sure everyone across Europe's big club shares that opinion, so <laughs> that's what we enjoy.
4: I think though with, um, with he, you spoke about how the age inside is, but that's experience and you saw with Pepe, you know, you don't have to get in foot races, you don't have to get into certain situations, you just use your, your game intelligence, and he used it in abundance, and so did the, the team, to be fair, and you know you you can't buy that experience you can have young players who run around really energetic and and sometimes that's a way to go forward but there is I've always said there's formulas to winning games especially in competitions and to be fair the more experienced you are the more it is easier to kind of understand that formula and Pepe was was immense in that and so were the rest of the team and the manager and his tactics fair play to them.
5: I think also one factor in this game was the fact that I was thinking a bit of desperation because they had to go through to save their season. They're miles adrift in the Portuguese league, they just got knocked out of the cup as well, played quite badly uh, against Praga. And... And then at the weekend, they had a bit of a training game where Sergio Oliveira, uh, the midfielder, also scored a long ranger. And I think this is like going back to experience as well. I mean, you got guys like Marchesin, who is in Europe for the first time uh, with Porto. I mean, he's like, he's in his 30s. Obviously, you have Pepe, who's, I think, whose challenge on Chiesa when Chiesa was facing open mm. goal is just one of the best things I've seen in years. But in the middle, you have Sergio Oliveira, who's 28, and he's been at Porto, I think, for over 10 years, but he's been out on loan. But he's having the season of his life. He's got 17 goals this season. I think the most he's managed previously was about six. Or something. So he's finally having his breakout season at the age of twenty-eight. And then up top, I thought this is a situation where one striker gets sent off, and the other striker does two strikers work, and you really have to be a bit of a hero to step for that. And I thought Marega run everything up top uh, for over a hundred minutes, like and, like absolutely magnificently. So I think everybody in that team really did a fantastic job, really played at the limit. Can they do it again? I think is the question.
4: Sometimes it's easier though when you do go down to ten. As a former player, sometimes it's it's a lot easier because you then actually just retreat and your tactics are pretty much, it's all on them then. And and sometimes it is a lot easier to go, we just bank up, we just go a 4-5 or a 4-4-1 four, four, or whatever it is, it's sometimes it's a lot easier. Um, and, and, and like I said, credit to them. It was a brilliant, dogged performance. And um, But you're right, it's now, when you're 11 v 11, have they got the quality? Have they got the players to really then go and get a result? Because it's easy, like I said, to defend and hit on counters and set plays. But, you know, it's 11 v 11. You've got to go for a team at some point. The
3: thing is, also in this game, they didn't just have to defend because after Chiesa had scored his second... That then sent the whole thing to extra time. And then you had probably the key moment, which was the free kick. So Rabio immediately had that header. Well, I say immediately, like three minutes afterwards. But that free kick left Juve needing two with only a couple of minutes left to play. Had they just had a, the draft excluder, which we've seen mocked on free kicks, the player lying down behind the wall, that never would have happened. Equally, if one of those players in the wall had not been Cristiano Ronaldo, it never would have happened.
6: He did sort of turn away and, you know. Open his legs. Open his legs, yeah. It wasn't the most solid war technique I've seen.
3: He's getting uh, pelters for it in Italy. Uh, Akhlav Hanif saying, interested to know what the reaction has been in Turin, specifically on Ronaldo, after this. Uh, And it's not positive. The three sporting papers, two to sport, the one most closely aligned with Juventus, has kind of stopped short of pinning it on him but Correa de la Sport, based in Rome, went with betrayed by Ronaldo and Gazessa, yesterday and today, very much talking about how he's been a disappointment. I
6: mean, obviously, you know, in Rome, with the heritage from Hadrian, you know, a badly constructed wall is, is awful. So I can nice. see why they're so much going up. that up.
3: So, yeah, so the, the kind of general fallout seems to be that they want to stay with Pirlo. They actually want to continue with his project, but they do recognise that his project and Ronaldo... And not necessarily two compatible things. Had, for example, as the Gazetta was suggesting today, Ronaldo been operating in a simple four four two like Ranieri would do, they probably would have been fine. But what Piero wants to do, and and uh, the, the level of expenditure they've got at their disposal after blowing what is it eighty million euros, I think, a year fifty million of of um, of wages alone on Ronaldo per season, uh, it kind of kind of mean they've got a choice. But I think he would like to move on. After this season, and I think they would probably like it too. But whether they'll find anybody to take over uh, his wages with one year left on his contract in Turin remains to be seen. Certainly, I think everyone was really upset to see Juve they knocked out by Porto just 24 hours after Andrea Agnelli had unveiled his his bright idea for reforming the Champions League. He does actually say this wasn't his idea; it was Edwin van der Sar, but he was just presenting it in, you know, as chairman of the European Clubs Association. <laughs> That old excuse. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've used that. Former Juventus player as well. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. So, uh, I mean, there's been a lot of fuss about this. We get a lot of fuss about Champions League proposals at least once a season. Are you more, less, same concerned about this one?
6: Well, I'm not concerned in the sense that we, it seems like every year now we get these proposals that you know because it's countering potential super leagues and and. But if it does happen, I would be. I mean you know, to make it so skewed towards the big clubs would, would remove the the drama from the competition. You know, the last, I would say, what, three, four years, the, the quarterfinals and semifinals of the Champions League have been some of the best football I think anyone's ever seen, the drama, the the comebacks, the, the quality of football, the kind of the, the players head-to-head. I don't think you need to do this to, you know, ensure big great games involving the world's best players but how,
3: how, how does his how does uh, van der Sar's plan which they say could be ready to come in from 2024 how does that change all that
6: well it it, it may it expands the competition into much more of a league so you're removing a lot of the knockout um element of it and you know leagues we've seen it in other competitions, you know, the, the group stages aren't aren't great. And by, by having a massive group stage is not going to help the competition. But what it does help is big clubs' bottom lines because they get guaranteed games every season. Um, and then they're starting to base stuff on, you know, heritage and, and history and stuff. And it's just, you know, the, the European Cup slash Champions League, I think was improved by turning it into its modern format. Um, and if you remember the the two group stage era was was widely detested and and they got rid of that brought back the last sixteen and it hasn't changed since two thousand and three or four ironically that was the season Porto then went on and and won it um the first time in the current format and I think this works I think this is for fans I think this is a good compromise between you know a, a a competition where the big clubs have a semi-guarantee of a certain amount of games but there's still the the knockout drama at the end of the season and the balance if you shift that balance it's going to really affect everything
5: and also my head explodes from this uh, Swiss format where you have a league of 30-yard teams and they only play 10 games each and then you rank them Mm. and then how you set the I think the way you can set those games I think that's it's not. I wouldn't like to call it fiddlable, but it's like how the algorithm to determine that I think can be can be Gamed. skewed. Uh, yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. All right. His other proposals for making the last fifteen minutes of matches subscription based and big clubs not selling to each other were, on the other hand, completely brilliant. Very good. And much more from the Champions League to discuss. A Dortmund performance against Sevilla with Erling Haaland, and of course Liverpool up next
0: and they're off the plucky youngster on the inside has started fast number 7 now going down the outside the big fella in the middle is racing to make up the ground a late charge and across the line yes the ball is across the line excellent header from the big fella to celebrate an unbelievable week of racing and football get a completely free £5 bet on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday of Cheltenham and a £5 risk-free bet builder on Chelsea v Atletico Madrid Paddy Power Max 1 £5 free bet per customer per day racing free bets available 48 hours before first race each day pre-match bet builder bets only minimum legs 2 plus max cash refund 5 pounds if it loses T's and C's apply 18 plus. Be
2: This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pearce, Ollie Kaye and the very best football writers around.
3: Tuesday in the Champions League, Dortmund underlining just how dangerous a 2-0 lead can be. Getting pegged back by Sevilla to a 2-2 scoreline but still going through 5-4 on aggregate. VAR caused plenty of comment in this one. A very weird spell in the middle of the game but the big story Erling Haaland, once again, a brace here. He's now on 20 Champions League goals in 14 matches. Can anyone put this into perspective for us?
6: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he's the fastest player to reach 20 goals in the Champions League. Um, he's done it 10 games quicker than the previous record holder, which was uh, Harry Kane, who's a reasonably good player himself. Um, wow. <laughs> Haaland's, like, every time you watch him, you're it's terrifying. He He's just... He's, I mean, we've said it many times on here, but he is a, a robot footballer who's come to destroy the game in terms right. of records. He's he's so good.
3: Karen, have, have you ever seen anything like Haaland before?
4: No, I mean, the, when he barged that player, the player tried to barge him and he just, like, running through and it was just as if to say, we used to call him football, get on the weights, and he just bounced off him. And I've never seen that in terms of speed and power and movement and he's got everything and look I don't agree what it did going up to the goalkeeper but then part of me thinks I quite like that because it's, it's personality fantasy. yeah I like that uh, so yeah. I'm like I'm like well, it is a personality it shows passion it shows a bit of ego which I really admire because you when you're on the pitch you're an actor or an actress and you've got to perform and I like that and I just think it just shows a lot about him I know Duncan's Itching to get in, so i let you speak.
6: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Bono had done it to him a little bit, so I think a bit of back and forth. I mean, you know, Terry Henry did it to Chris Kirkland and didn't harm his reputation, so, you know. Um, I just occurred to him, actually, that, you know, people talk about, you know, genes in football and stuff, and there's a guy in pro cycling at the moment, Mathieu van der Poel, who's kind of a similar build to Haaland, and he's absolutely dominating the sport at the moment.
3: In and the mountains that, especially, I imagine.
6: Well, not in the mountains, but he is he's kind of redefining what a, what a cyclist can do. And his dad, Adri, was a really famous pro, and his granddad was Raymond Poulidor, who's one of the all-time famous names in cycling. And obviously, Harlan's dad is a professional footballer, and it's like, you know, the, the genes have combined to create these kind of super sportsmen of the 2020s. And who's next? Sergio Aguero's son, maybe? Because obviously wow. his granddad is Maradona. So it's the way forward.
3: Yeah. By the way... Uh... Haaland's got a cousin. His name is Albert Brout charland He's aged 17. He plays for Mulder's youth team, much as Holland used to. He scored 64 goals in 37 games, Wolf. Here
6: we go.
5: See? Norway. They're coming for you. I, I'm just going to say that I'm really sometimes worried for Marco Royce when Holland lifts him, throws him, hugs him, because it's like Holland's like this massive child who doesn't know his own power, and I think maybe yeah. he's just going to break his bones a little bit at some point. I totally agree with everything was said about Holland. Just, that it's just so impressive and so unusual, uh, and so frightening. Uh, but at the same time, probably moving on to the next point, it's he's really badly let down by his defense. I look at this. Um, uh, Dortmund team and it's like a Colossus with feet of clay like going forward they can they are so good and then after half a, like with half an hour to go Sevilla put on Luke de Jong they start like just chucking crosses into the box and it, this has been Dortmund's problem for years it's like a grenade goes off and instead of attacking they all kind of sort of seem to run away from it and this is how they let they conceded the goal in Seville and they nearly
3: cocked it up on Tuesday as well uh, because they just can't defend That would be my policy with a grenade as as well, Karen.
4: (laughs) (laughs) No, I was just going to say, it's how I spoke earlier about, you know... Formulas and game management in the Champions League and experience, and that goes back to it. You know, if if Dortmund had a Pepe like player or an experienced mm. player that knows the game and goes, Look, we're getting crosses into the box, stop the crosses, first point, or we get people in and we defend them well. And when that goal went in from the cross, it was a fantastic header. You just saw the players, they all just kind of went, Thank goodness there's not enough time because you could probably think they would crumble. So, um, Again, like I said, Champions League, it's a formula and you've got to have game management and you've got to have a few kind of bit of magic up your sleeve to, to get you through to that to that next round. But no question about attack, they're sensational. But I agree with Sasha defensively. that they're, 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 they're quite weak.
5: It's like in this situation here, they had Emery Chan at centre-back, who gives off an idiotic <laughs> penalty. Uh, Marvin hits in goal is just a bag of nerves all the way throughout. I think it was like a shot in the third minute and instead of... He just kind of palms it away instead of just, just calmly dealing with it. So there's all this nervousness through the back four. I mean, you could see it's against like what they do in the Bundesliga, they're regularly shipping loads of goals. Against Bayern, um, the fullbacks can't defend. All right, it is against Bayern, but elementary errors and time after time, year after year. So I think whoever is looking at the next round, yes, Holland is frightening. Yes, they're great going forward, but they'll be looking at the back line thinking, yeah, I quite fancy drawing Dortmund because they're not all that.
3: Do you think Liverpool would fancy Dormund? Yeah, I would say so, yeah.
6: What sort of club would play midfielders at centre-half, Sash? It's unbelievable, isn't <laughs> well, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, if anyone's going to tinker with the structure of uh, the Champions League, then surely Sevilla should be allowed to go into the Europa League now because, mm. you know, that's, <laughs> it's fair, isn't it? That's what they do. So. All
3: right. Uh, do you want to discuss that very curious bit where time folded back on itself courtesy of, 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 of VAR? Haaland summed, summed it up quite nicely at the end of the game thus. First of all it was a nice goal before but then it was penalty and then uh, I missed and then he cheated so then I uh, took it again and then I
6: scored when he didn't cheat so yeah it was exact the same but then he stood on the line and, and he didn't stand on the line. But uh, yeah when he was screaming in my face on the, after the first one I was thinking
3: oh, it would be even better to score another goal and uh, yeah that's what happens. Anyway it all worked out in the end. And uh, through Dortmund go, and they'll be in the draw, as will Liverpool. Sasha, uh, this is going to be your bit to talk about Liverpool, but when the game kicked off, what did you do? I was uh, doing
5: anything but watching the game. I switched everything off, I stared at the wall for a bit, uh, as you alluded to, I took the bins out, cleaned the kitchen. And bang, on 10 o'clock, I switched everything back on, and so Liverpool were through, so I could... Watch the game. and You were the that reason worried? For
3: that, you were that worried that they would I, th- I think it's team. a huge
5: game. Yeah, it, it was just like this. This was a game where they absolutely could not make any mistakes in. Given the recent form, even, you know, allowing for Leipzig's setup and a two-goal lead, I wasn't completely confident. And I think if Liverpool went out at this, at this stage like they did last season, you know, this time it would be psychologically absolutely disastrous. I also was thinking let's say, a year ago when they played Atletico, of course, the game that should never have been played, but feels now like the last game of like Il Grande-Liverpool, if you like, you know, full Anfield, Liverpool going at Atletico Madrid, superb game until they, I think, and Adrian error, the missed kick. And that stopped something. And maybe this is the chance of Liverpool, maybe, maybe to rise up again. And I thought... In this particular game, the approach was perfect. Fabinho in midfield, of course, everyone's commented on it, but you could see how they were defending. I mean, against, say, for example, you take Chelsea. The press was shambolic. It just wasn't existent. Here, you could see they had the front three, the three behind. It's like a screen of six. Um, in front of the Leipzig players when they were on the ball. I thought the back line perhaps, it was really weird watching on telly because it focused on that part of the pitch. So couldn't really tell how deep the back line was set, but it felt like they had enough there to not be completely caught up by balls over the top, even though that happened a couple of times. But I thought just overall, Thiago, I think Thiago, you think oh, he's looking better and he did that Kung Fu uh Pass forward for for um, for Salah He's on it again, again with Fabinho next to him. It's a completely different proposition, and yeah, I just thought this this was a complete performance, including all the missed chances until they finally scored.
3: Right, 70th minute when uh, Salah opened the scoring, and then within four minutes, uh, Manny had had added another. First time since October that Fabinho has uh, been there in midfield. Yes, yeah,
6: since the Everton game. And I, I kind of agree with Sasha about the Atleti game being a, a turning point. And then I think the next turning point was that Everton game. also Van Dyke getting injured, Thiago getting injured um, and everything having to change. So, yeah, th- maybe this is the, the, the turning point.
3: OK. This came at the Pushkas Arena with this famous sign. This is Pushkas Arena. This means more. Uh, Karen, do you trust them to repeat this success elsewhere when you see Thiago alongside Fabinho and Fabinho back in midfield? Do you think... Il Grande Liverpool is back?
4: Um, no, I think they knew how to turn up for this game. You know, one-off games they're prepared for. They know, look, this is going to save their season in essence. So I think they were up for it. They rested players ahead of the game. I think there was six changes. So there was a freshness towards this Liverpool side. There was an energy. I think Jota as well coming in mm. was more aggressive in the press. You, you know, Sasha spoke about the pressing intent. Just but it was more like the old Liverpool, and you're right, Fabinho in there, Alder in there. They had the legs and the energy, which is what Liverpool are all about. Because you know, watch the the clips back against Fulham, and the back line were, were were really really high, but there was no pressure on the ball, and so they just lumped it over the top and got in. And basically, you need people to press and stop that if you're going to have that high line. And that was a big difference, I thought, last night. And you need them, your energy in midfield to get around the pitch. And so I think, in terms of Champions League, I think they can prepare for those games, but it will be at a detriment at the league because they might rest players and bring people in. So, um, but you can't ever write them off, and key players might come back later on as the season progresses for this competition so I don't think you can write them off but I think they know in their heads the league's gone and Champions League places is going to be a big ask for them
3: right but you could see them doing a run in in the Champions League
4: yeah I really do I think they could I think it but they'll have to like I said it'll, it'll have to be a detriment at some times in the league they might do what they did against Fulham and rest players
3: as you say, Karen, it was only about five days before this that Liverpool had probably their worst game of the season, losing at home to Fulham. They've got Wolves, uh, a visit to Molyneux on Monday. How does that fit in with this defenders leaving them space and all that paradigm?
4: Well, we know about Wolves. They they come alive in the second half. Um, and I agree with Sasha. I think they'll be defensively strong. Organised, They defend with a back five at times. So it's, again, going to be difficult for Liverpool to break down. Also, the quick turnaround for for Liverpool to recover and go again. I think they'll, they'll grind out a result, Liverpool, but I think it'll be very difficult. And, again, Liverpool have to be very mindful of how strong Wolves do come into the latter part of the game. And they've done well over the last, you know, six weeks. Wolves, not playing particularly well, but grinding out results. And that's something they could pose as a threat towards Liverpool in the game.
3: Will you be watching this one, Sasha, or will you be switching everything off and staring at the wall?
4: <laughs> you know taking what? the it's, bins it's,
3: out. <laughs> yeah, taking the bins out. No, I, I'll watch this one because there's nothing riding
5: on this particular one. And also, I think what comes after Wolves, Liverpool have three weeks off. This is the period where they can actually prepare for the final stage of the season. Finally, Klopp gets a period where he can train his team because obviously so far he just doesn't have the time. They're recovering all the time. So he uh, he will have some players back. Maybe Henderson might get closer. Um, and obviously with Jota in, they can reintegrate in how they play. Fabinho in midfield, work on those new defenders. So I think they can really prepare properly for the last two months. Again, perhaps in terms of energy this season... Because of how it out, Liverpool cannot be cannot play like they play against Leipzig every single game. But this is because they have Europe. This is where we can pay. Perhaps they can pace themselves and switch it on in Europe, maybe for a couple of games in the league to make sure that you know it's not completely like up and down all the time. But I think this this is crucial, and this is another reason why Liverpool had to get through because they actually have a genuine chance of making this push because of these three weeks off.
3: So uh, Raphael Honigstein was making the point on Tuesday that it was a similar break that enabled Klopp to turn things around in that dis- similarly disastrous final season at uh, Borussia Dortmund. So that's really interesting. But why-, why three weeks off? The FA Cup will be one of the reasons.
5: Uh, yeah, and an international break, and we'll wow. see how many people can travel. But the right. South Americans obviously aren't going. Yep. Uh, and let's see what happens to the European games. But I think again, key- for the South Americans, is key because Firmino's got an injury. Fabinho's just recovered. Uh, you know, Alisson, I mean, we'll see what happens with Alisson because obviously of his dad as well, but whether he stays or whether, whether he goes. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think at least the core of the players stay. I'm not sure what happens to Salah and Mane at the moment, uh, whether they should be, whether they'll be traveling or not. Of course, I'd prefer none of them to travel because it's just, it feels really odd to have lots of traveling in this particular time of the year, given the COVID situation. Uh, but there is genuinely, I think, there is a possibility that he will have a core of his team to work on stuff.
4: You know what, though, Sasha? I'd be surprised if he if he does want to work with them. I, I'm not saying he would send them on international duty. I think he would give them time off. If I was him, I'd, I'd get away from the training ground. As a player, when things aren't going great and it's been a really difficult period, sometimes stepping away and having a break from everyone and even Klopp himself because he's been through a lot personally you know, step away. You know, less is more. They're not going to lose fitness. They're not going to... Of course, the injured players have got to go in and push back. But I think take yourself away from a training ground because it's a really difficult place, a training ground, when things aren't going well and the mood and the energy. So sometimes to get that, have a little bit of a respite. So I think less is more and I wouldn't be surprised if club went, look, have, have five days off and I don't want to see you and I don't want you anywhere near the training ground. Go be with, you know your families that you can be in a COVID situation when we come back in we grind and we go for it and you're right we go hard and we go for this Champions League.
3: Mm -hmm. Awesome positive thoughts there for Liverpool fans all right next up we'll be turning our thoughts to the Women's Champions League action midweek and also the Premier League weekend.
0: Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? On Apple
2: Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is the Totally Football Show with James Richardson.
3: Last 16 taking shape in the Women's Champions League. Chelsea are through, Karen, against Atletico Madrid. Thanks to that 10-woman win last week, really. This was a 1-1 draw this week.
4: Yeah, I mean, I watched the game, um, the 1-1 draw, and it was, again, fine margins. You know, Atletico should have probably had three penalties, Two of them were denied, um, sorry, and, and one was given and it was an opportunity for them to get back in the game and they hit the crossbar. Chelsea went the other end, had a penalty and scored it and that was a tie over. So it was a real um, close-knit game. I don't think Emma Hayes was particularly pleased in terms of the, the performance but they got the result and like I keep saying, this this competition is a results-orientated business. doesn't matter. No one cares how you get through. Just get through into the next round. So, She'll be pleased with that. It's been a taxing week. And as you said, they were down to 10 um, ten players in the first leg. So to to get through, uh, she would have been pleased with that.
3: All right. Barcelona also through Chelsea, Leon, Bayern, Garden, Wolfsburg, also in the quarterfinals. Paris Saint-Germain and Man City should be joining them on this uh, Thursday. Who's going to lose to Leon in the final this year, do you think, Karen?
4: It's tough. I think City and Chelsea are really going to, be up for it I really know that they're both Man City are really coming into form they bought a lot of players a new manager came in and they're really starting to click into gear and I think they could cause them problems Chelsea I think could be a real threat I think they're probably one of the best counter-attacking teams in in, in, in European football at the moment but Lyon have just got away and, and that's it's that mentality and if you can shift that mentality of not having that fear factor I think other teams have got a chance but they're probably the three for me who I'd say I've got a very very
5: good chance. Karen, I have a question. Have you played against Lyon?
3: Yeah, last
4: year how, yeah. how
5: what are they like because obviously I like I, I watch Lyon uh year after year and you know you got like Wendy Renard at the back who's just like a colossus and uh, quality yeah. players absolutely everywhere. How do you play against them because the record speaks for itself. It's absolutely frightening. They look like they're frightening to play against. So how how do you approach a game against Lyon?
4: It's not to have fear. We actually, we played them in the Champions League semi-final and I think we lost 2-1 at their place and we drew 1-1 at ours. And um, if the team hadn't have had that fear factor in the first 45 minutes where we we were naive, and like I said, formulas about Champions League, we conceded a minute before half-time, we conceded on a set play. I don't think there was team to be fearful as everyone presumes so it's, it's that similar thing probably when Arsenal had it as soon as you walked on the pitch you were you think oh we've lost the game you can't have that attitude because it gives the advantage and i think if chelsea at the time when i was playing there we'd had that mentality of who cares i think it would have given us even more of an edge and we only realized that we were close to them when the tie was done we got them to our place and it was 1-1 and we hit the cross we hit the post etc um I think then it was a shift in mentality where we're we're actually getting close to them. But they are difficult. But like I said, they've lost players in key positions and other teams are strengthened. So I don't think they're the force they were. But they've got got that winning knack and that game understanding of how to get results in this competition, which sometimes you can't buy.
3: Excellent. OK, well, the draw for the quarterfinals is coming up Friday. So it'll be interesting to see who gets who. Next up, let's hit the Premier League weekend.
2: You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast
3: Network. Right, what awaits in the Premier League as we hit the 10 games to go mark City, who are now 14 points clear again after Wednesday evening's 5-2 win against Saints visit Fulham, who are now just goal difference from safety. Their closest rivals, Brighton, visit Saints. Newcastle are only a point better off than the Cottagers host Villa on Friday evening. Elsewhere... The battle for top four spots sees Chelsea at Leeds. Chelsea, who are now fourth after Monday's victory over Everton. Third place Leicester take on Sheffield United in the Foxes against the Fox classico. Everton are up against Burnley and two huge games on the Sunday evening. The North London derby and Man United against David Moyes. West Ham. Woof. Monday's mentioned it's Wolves-Liverpool. Right. North London derby, everybody. Arsenal against Tottenham. It's Sunday, 430 How worried should Arsenal fans be?
4: (laughs) I think they've got bigger issues to worry about, really. They've got this Europa League game first to to concern with and I think he's got to pick the right team for the game against Olympiacos and then I think then he's got to turn his attention quickly to the North London derby. But for me, the the North London derby is actually, of course, it's about egos and, and, and pride, for the fans and for the club, but it actually is secondary at the moment. The, the Europa League is the main competition and it literally has got to keep their season alive for Arsenal. So um, their focus has got to be primarily on that at the moment, I think.
3: Spurs will also be involved in Thursday night action. They'll be at home, though, to Dinamo Zagreb whilst uh, Arsenal are off in Perez again.
6: Tottenham haven't won three league games in a row against Arsenal since the Rubik's Cube was invented and I think which, whichever manager can rotate better after the Europa League might be in with a chance of, uh, of winning this game. But, I mean, I think the big question is obviously Gareth Bale. He's been brilliant the last couple of weeks and you know he's got five goals against Arsenal in the Premier League more than he has against any other team. He did used to be a bit of a, a bane for them. Um, so if he can continue this i think it's it's pretty worrying for for arsenal because that, that kind of attack of son kane bale not only as a series of one syllable names but you know really good uh, effective forwards so yeah
3: right. we'll see and and kane with a terrific record obviously in this fixture as well spurs in all competitions four straight victories in which they've scored 12 and only conceded 2 Jose Mourinho hasn't always adopted a free-flowing attacking approach in, in big games. But even though Arsene Wenger's not there, I've always got the, the impression that Jose absolutely loathes Arsenal and might really enjoy putting them to the torch in, in this one.
6: Yeah, I remember being at Stamford Bridge for Arsene Wenger's 1,000th game in charge of Arsenal. Um, Mourinho back in his second spell at Chelsea, and they won six nil. And he, it's fair to say, he revelled, <laughs> revelled in that. And yeah, I mean, he obviously had a lot of history with Arsenal in the in the Wenger era. Um, you know, and I even remember the, the first time he didn't win the league, um, Chelsea were playing at, at the Emirates and he did that walking across the pitch during his keep your chin up gesture to the Chelsea fans. And yeah, he'll be up for this. Um, and, you know, everyone knows that big games this season have tended to be mostly nil-nil. But Arsenal-Tottenham is generally the, the kind of big six game that is a bit more anarchic and, you know, it tends to end in some sort of huge drama. So I wouldn't be surprised to see quite a few goals in this game.
4: Yeah, I, I don't think it will be nil-nil. I mean... Even everyone's criticised Spurs for being defensive, scored over you know, 100 goals this season. so um, And that front four, and, and Spurs have to attack because of their defence. It's so vulnerable. The best form of defence is attack, and they've literally got to go for it. And we've seen how Arsenal play out. It's risk versus reward. They'll be thinking the same, but I agree with Duncan. I think there'll be goals in it, and uh, I think it'll be an entertaining derby.
3: Spurs coming off a 4-1 victory over Palace. Arsenal from a 1-1 draw with Burnley. Sasha, can you make the case for the Gunners?
5: I think the case for the Gunners will be that it's really... I don't think there's much pressure on them in this game because they're so far adrift. Whereas I think Spurs are still, you know, they're looking at getting... Uh, into top four there is still pressure on Spurs results in the league where I don't think there is this pressure on Arsenal and therefore maybe Arteta can, can try something a little bit different just to see how how Spurs would react to that so um, I think probably Arsenal should be approaching this with a much calmer demeanour sort of none of the Arsenal fan TV craziness I think they should just treat it as another game
3: okay and maybe the lack of fans at the Emirates might help them out in that. Spurs, as you say, still questing for the top four. They're five points off the Champions League positions, lying seventh. Three points ahead of them in fifth are West Ham, who are in a fixture which comes with a big tub of narrative at Man United. David Moyes, formerly the chosen one, back at Old Trafford. He's never won there as a visiting manager. Of course, he didn't win that much in the other (laughs) dugout either. Uh, Is it time to reevaluate that season at Old Trafford when he got the job and made Jose cry? Was it all his fault or given... Was it no? Duncan says no, no. It
6: wasn't his fault, but I think the way he played at Everton, he hasn't really been able to get a team to play like that until now at West Ham. And I don't think he... If he'd have tried to do that at United, I think the fans wouldn't have really stood for it. You know, they were the reigning league champions when he took over. Um, you know, they w- wanted a certain style of football and he he did try and provide that and, and it didn't work. But, um, you know, West Ham are looking so good. They, they win against Leeds on Monday... Was you know dominant, calm, n- no real issues, um, and he's getting performances out of really kind of you know not yeoman footballers, but like Craig Dawson suddenly mm. turned into a goal threat. He scored more goals in 2021 than Marcus Rashford, which is you know a thing, um, and I can see West Ham doing okay in this game.
5: Yeah. I think what's really impressive with West Ham is the, the winter signings. I mean, obviously, last year you had Sochik and Bowen. At um, this time, you have j Um And they really have... They came into the team quickly, organically, and pre- able to produce, produce the results straight away. I mean, of course, missing Lingard in this game could be a bit of a problem, but they can perhaps be slightly more conservative like they were before. But I think him coming in has certainly, you know, added a bit of warmth to how they play. I mean, I've seen... I saw West Ham play against Liverpool, and I thought there was a bit of... Old boys, in that they were quite, mm. they weren't positive enough. I didn't think in that game. So let, let, let's see how he approaches this one.
4: I don't think they've been. This is going to be a bit harsh. I don't think they've been ultra positive the whole season. They've they've actually enjoyed defending, and they've got counter attacking players like your Jesse Lingards, like your Bowens, like your Antonios, who are quite happy that they they sit back, they defend, they wait for you to make mistakes, and they absolutely counter on you in, in pace. And we know that teams that don't have a lot of possession are getting the results at the moment. And I think defensively really, really organised and they're just he's brought in players that are sensational on the counter-attack, like Jesse Lingard. How he hasn't played for a year and he's got the levels of fitness that he has. I saw him live, I think, after the second game in and I couldn't believe how fit and how dominant he was up and down the pitch. And and that's a credit to him. And They've got the structure behind them. So I, I don't think they're... I think the fans not being there is helpful because they're not going to outplay you. They, of course, they can play, but their game plan is solely counter-attacking football and it's it's working wonders.
5: Also, talking of the style of football, Karen, when you were at the club and a manager comes in from a slightly lower level, mm. perhaps making a step up, and you know, he tries to introduce maybe his his brand of football, do the better players, how do they react?
4: It can be very restrictive because you're coming into a winning side and why are you changing that? we have just won the league and also it's a bit I have, I thought it was always a poison chalice why you know you, you'd never turn Man United down and that's the difficult one but do you really want to go in and be that first person after Sir Alex Ferguson after doing all that and make change and the players are restrictive they probably don't buy into the manager just because it's not Sir Alex it's so hard
6: Well, exactly, and also the only player he got to bring in that summer was Fellaini, who came from his old club and kind of embodied the old way that he used to play, so that just kind of made it worse. And then, obviously, in January, Juan Mata arrived on a helicopter, but that didn't really help much either. So, yeah, I think, like Karen says, I don't think anyone could have gone in after Ferguson and really made a success of it, but you know, Moyes probably did deserve a chance at a club that big, but that wasn't the one.
3: All right, maybe West Ham will be. That big club. It was a difficult time. Ferguson stepping aside. David Gill leaving as well. She had Moyes arriving with Ed Woodward and we all know how that turned out. Anyway, is this the time? Is this the time that he gets his first win away at Old Trafford? They are unbeaten. Man United in 11 matches in all competitions ahead of Thursday evening's game, which might be underway by the time you hear this, listener, in which they're hosting Milan in the Europa League. Quick prediction, West Ham? Man United? What do you think? Sash? Sash? Draw. Draw. One more. No, no. I'm
4: going Man United win.
3: There you go. Excellent. Next up, Leeds-Chelsea and the big battle at the bottom. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official
0: beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, Courtside seats to an NBA game and more. Head over to Michelob slash courtside to learn more.
2: You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power.
3: Lunchtime Saturday, it's Leeds against Chelsea. Uh, Monday evening, Chelsea were in action beating Everton 2 0. Leeds were also playing and losing by that same scoreline to West Ham. Leeds have, in fact, now lost four of their last five. Chelsea, as it stands. Are they going to be challengers for the title next season? Is there anything they're missing?
4: Goal scorer, you know, I, I was at that game that you mentioned against Everton, and they they pass the ball like it's ten passes is a goal. They, they really do. They just pass, 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 and they just drain you out. But you know, the the first goal was a, an own goal, and then the second goal was a set play. Look, they, they, they're getting the results, and clean sheets have been really, really good, and they look completely in control, but. Again, it's just, who's that one person that's going to put the ball in the back of the net consistently? You know, Timo Werner had lots of chances and again, the same outcome. Played Kai Havertz up there, who actually was brilliant. It was really, really good. Really enjoyed him in that role. Very, very smart. I know he played up there for Leverkusen uh, towards the end of his, his his time there and was very effective. But you just need a goal scorer and I, and I don't see it in Werner. And, and he looks frustrated and I don't know where his best position is. And I think that's their Achilles heel at the moment, and maybe one more midfielder. But I think I still think they're a little bit off.
6: So far under Tuchel, they've conceded 0.22 goals per game, which, if you extrapolate over a 38-game season, is about 8.4 goals. So let's round it down to eight. That would shatter the current Chelsea record of 15. You know, four five. So, I mean, obviously that's not going to continue, you know, in perpetuity. But the 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 transformation in their defence since he took over is, you know, if it, if you ever want to demonstrate to someone how a new manager can come in and with the same players essentially, you know, completely change the way they play and how they defend, then this is one of the best examples ever.
3: Yeah, in his 11 matches in charge so far, only one opposition player, Minamino, has found the back of the Chelsea net. He's unbeaten in his first nine Premier League matches. Only two managers have begun their Premier League careers with longer unbeaten runs. Listener, can you name them? Go on, Duncan.
6: Um, it's Maurizio Sari, beloved at Chelsea. Um, and perhaps more surprisingly, Frank Clark of the old Nottingham Forest days.
5: Wow. And they finished third. Hmm. Alrighty. Uh, one, thing, one thing I would add on Chelsea as well I think it, it's, it's a good time to find defensive competence. And I think if you look at their five, next five games, should probably be able to win them all. And that will probably clinch Champions League for them.
3: Wow. So effective. Mm. This game, they've certainly got a good record in. Last time Leeds beat Chelsea was December 2002. It was a 2-0 victory. Ellen Road, El Tell was in charge uh, back then. It's a game that featured Jonathan Woodgate and a 16-year-old James Milner on the score sheet. He looked identical back then to what he does now.
4: (laughs) You know what, though? With this game, a lot of teams haven't pressed Chelsea and they've allowed them to get into this rhythm. This is a challenge for me because... Leeds will press you and this is I think this is a really interesting fiction. I think Leeds could get a result out of this because everyone else has has kind of not pressed Chelsea. They've backed off. This team's going to go after them and it'll be interesting to see how they react and how Thomas Tuchel manages this this game. So I'm really excited and going to look very closely at this game.
3: Interesting. All right, now also in the top four race, Everton kind of. They're four points off the Champions League places, but with a game in hand over Chelsea. Saturday evening, or 5.30, they'll be hosting Burnley, while the next day, Sunday at 2 o'clock, it's Leicester against Sheffield United, who haven't won any of the last ten meetings with the Foxes. Meanwhile, at the bottom, West Brom, who are in 19th place, are at Palace. That'll be the third game in a row that Sam Allardyce is up against one of his former clubs, curiously. Uh, Fulham, who are now level <laughs> on points with Brighton, host Man City and Brighton visits Saints. Uh, do you want to talk about Parker Tony and whether he, a week after that Liverpool win, could spring the ultimate surprise against Pep Guardiola, Sash?
5: Probably not, but I think it's a free hit for him uh, because he had... So obviously they, they went through a spell where they were playing well and couldn't win a game. Uh, then they picked up some wins in February. Then they're coming up to the spell of games against Spurs, Liverpool and Man City. And maybe the best you can hope for is three points. They got the three points against Liverpool, uh, which I think, again, like, because I went to the first game when they first played Liverpool at uh, Craven Cottage. And that was about two or three games after he switched the system. And there were similarities between that game and this game against Liverpool. It's the way they went at Liverpool in the first half, except this time they did it much more aggressively, much more confidently. And then second half, more defending. Um, obviously, the De Cordova really dropping in as the fifth defender. And it just feels, it just looks like a much better honed system but I'm not sure whether they will be able to kind of go at Man City as effectively as they have done against a team that's as low on confidence as, as, as Liverpool because I think basically Manchester City I think have the place to play through this but I don't think this is a game where they need to achieve anything I think they should be able to do better than the tradition of doing it in City because I think you know City find it easy to play against certain teams and over the years I think Fulham they just basically generally spanked them um and I remember when um Parker faced Man City two years ago when they were getting relegated. The game was over in three minutes. I don't think it's going to be over in three minutes now. Um, and I think I think Parker can probably just enjoy this one because, I mean, he's beaten Klopp. He's beaten Ancelotti. He's beaten, I think, on a personal level. He must like, quite enjoy this. He's beaten really experienced established managers um, and I think the game against Guardiola would just be interesting for him and I think um, you know they were talking on much of the day much um, of the day two after the Liverpool game and Danny Murphy was talking a lot about you know the mentality they approach but I think more credit has to be given to Parker for switching to defensive um, system not just mentally but you know, physically on the pitch. The implementation, I think first and foremost, this system is about defence. I mean, if I look at the results, maybe this is one of the reasons why they kind of struggle to pick up points against the teams right above them. There's a bunch of draws uh, and, which we, and they have a few of those games coming up, which they need, need to win. But perhaps there's less pressure now because they've kind of caught up. So I think Parker I think can just enjoy this one. And I think the big one for him is Leeds next week.
6: If Fulham do play as well as they have been, maybe City's best chance of, uh, of scoring will be Phil Foden winning a well-earned penalty.
3: You're making an ironic reference to the fact that he was denied a stone wall spot kick uh, because he didn't go down.
6: Yeah, he stayed up too easy. Um, Yeah, it was a very strange incident. I mean, we try not to go on about VAR too much, but this surely was why why it was brought in because, yeah, maybe John Moss didn't see it and maybe he thought that Alex McCarthy got a touch, but... He clearly didn't, and why was it not overturned? Um, I always thought McCarthyism was about indiscriminate allegations on the basis of unsubstantiated charges, but that wasn't the case here. So, um, poor.
3: (laughs) 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 The turnaround, though, as you say, from the start of the season when they were comfortably on track to break the kind of conceding 80 goals in the season mark to the, the run of clean sheets they've had of late is remarkable. One thing
5: I would add, though, you look at the team that, that faced Liverpool. I think there is, I think there was ten or eleven new players in there, but six of them loanees. So I mean, he loaned in. Ariola, Anderson, Aina, Lukman, Lemina, Maja. So how many of and and also Loftus Cheek. I mean, how many of them will he be able to keep? On the one hand, got new lads coming in and they get the system and they obviously know how to play it really quickly. On the other hand, how much longer term can he build on this? Um, which which I think would be the challenge in the summer. How many of these players he can keep? Some of them. I mean, I, th- I don't think he'll be able to keep Lukman, for example. But then also, you know, he added Maja because I think he realized he needs he needs more goals of there. So against Liverpool and against Spurs, he almost played with with two up top, which is you know, which is. Brave, But again, it shows the confidence in the team and they, they they won one of those games and just conceded one goal on the other.
4: What he will have, he'll have time. And what he didn't have when he got promoted because of the playoff and because of the quick turnaround, he'll have time to assess the situation. He'll know where the club's at, whether they're in the Premier League or not. And I think the reason why they started so poorly was because... They didn't have time to prepare. He didn't have time to get those players in. Now he's got his fixed team. Anderson's been a revelation. And you're right, those loanies that have come in, he can train with them and work with them, and he's gone a little bit more pragmatic. But I think even though he knows he's got those on loan, he will have the time to prepare, similar to how Aston Villa did last season when they came up. It was a shopping dash. they got it fixed, and now look at them. So if he gets the same time to sort it out, you know, that will be a real big um, advantage for him going into the next season.
3: Speaking of Aston Villa, uh, Friday night they're going to be at one of the other teams directly involved in this scrap, Newcastle. Newcastle are only a point better off than Brighton and Fulham. One win in six. Villa haven't actually won at St James's Park since April 2005. Duncan, do you remember this game?
6: I do, yeah. It was the one when Lee Bowyer and Kieran Dyer ended up fighting and getting sent off. Um... Teammates. Yeah, teammates. Um, I mean, you know, that was a very dysfunctional, internally problematic Newcastle, so... Uh, totally
3: unlike.
6: Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's one of the great great moments of Premier League history, really.
3: So there's rumours, there's rumours of, and, you know, we have to tread carefully with rumours, but there seem to be quite substantiated reports of a lot of friction within the Magpies' camp at the moment. Steve Bruce has, I think, referenced this as well. I mean, Karen, on one hand, this is the kind of stuff that pros always say this happens all the time and you probably want that passion etc but of all the three teams are they the one you're most worried about Newcastle
4: yes I am uh, I was at the game against West Brom and um, gosh it was a, a very dry 90 minutes to say the least um, but yeah I'm worried because the goals you know all the teams down there are struggling but I think Fulham have got a bit of momentum I think West Brom are a bit more I don't know they've got a bit more dogged. Newcastle, it's just a dire situation for them. And the goals, you know, you're looking at Joel Linton scored one goal this season. Fraser's been in and out and he's playing up top. Gail and Carol are out of contract. Who's really going to fight and play for the manager? And and, um, I think it's just a massive issue in terms of who's going to get in the goals. And I just, from the performance, I didn't really see it. And Against West Brum, he even he threw on, he, he went attacking quite early as opposed to West Brom, who needed the result more than Newcastle. Still didn't really do anything. They were disappointing. So, yeah, I really do fear fear for Newcastle and, and Brighton, though. You know, the goals as well. Just play nice football, but it's results orientated business and you're not getting the results.
6: I mean, this Newcastle game does remind us that um, Steve Bruce is a rare manager in that he's managed Newcastle and Sunderland Aston Villa and Birmingham and both Sheffield clubs so you know he's been around and I, I don't know that doesn't sit right with a lot of a lot of fans of those teams and, and generally I think.
3: He's, but he's still behind Sam Allardyce who's managed even more Premier League clubs than him. Well yeah but Allardyce is, is more of a kind of
6: an overall spread rather than kind of you know direct right. rivals. Okay mm. then.
3: Steve Bruce has managed five Premier League clubs, just in case you're keeping track, listener. Mark Hughes is on six. Allardyce with a whopping eight. Crikey, it says here uh, Roy Hodgson's done five. So that's what? Liverpool, Palace, West Brom, Brom. Blackburn. Who who am I missing? Fulham. Fulham. Of course, Fulham. All right, then. Let's get some odds and more with a brand new voice here on the Totally Football Show as Lee Price heads off to new challenges. A new edge of reality monologues. Here is Carl Monaghan from Paddy Power.
1: Thank you, James, and hello to all the football adoring listeners out there. I must say I'm a regular listener and right now I'm talking to myself. With some intriguing managerial jousts in store, we'll get right into it. Bielsa and Tuchel dance at first light on Saturday, a contrast of footballing styles, but both enjoy a snug tracksuit. Neutrals and pundits seem to back Bielsa's men blind, and they'll have their takers this week at 7-2. The Leeds fans must be well familiar by now with the feelings of nausea and ecstasy that one usually associates with a trip to Alton Towers. The West Yorkshiremen have lost five of their last seven, while Tuchel's well-oiled work-in-progress are unbeaten in eleven. The eight to eleven about Chelsea here is sure to appeal to some. Despite a vacant Emirates this Sunday, Spurs will go there in full voice. Bale has the boyish grin back and the fire in his eyes looks relit. Has the Welshman saved Jose's behind from the bacon slicer? Spurs to claim the North London bragging rights at 17 to 10, and with Louise and Co set to be put through their paces, an away win looks tempting. Later on Sunday, we see Moyes go back to Old Trafford. The poisoned chalice that was replacing Fergie still looms largely over the Scot. You can expect West Ham to land a glove as confidence is high though. One Victor Lindelof may be quaking in his boots when he sees what Antonio benches. Bruno and Shaw are sure to be a nuisance and with Jesse Lingard's loan deal leaving him covered in red tape, United may edge it. A home win and both teams to score looks the shrewd way to play it at 13-5.
3: Thank you, Carl. You can find out those odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only, terms and conditions apply, and when the fun stops, stop. Listener, if you're hungry for a subscription to The Athletic and its unrivaled coverage on the business end of the season, uh, then why not head to theathletic.com slash totally you get all the articles all the podcasts ad free and q and a's with writers all for just four pounds a month crikey karen we've got a podcast series called golazo and this friday we're dropping a new one all about ronaldo no not that one that one he's one of your idols wasn't
4: he yeah he was yeah he was my first football boot that i had and i think i've told you before i've got all my brazil kits My favourite jerseys, but yeah, my silver R nines with the blue tick were, um, yeah, were just. I loved him. He was so good. I think it's just grown up watching him in the World Cup and that team: Ronaldo, Rivaldo, um, Carlos. Just. I think that was probably a massive reason why I fell in love with football, hmm. um, just watching them. And yeah, but Ronaldo was, was massive. And like I said, I needed those Nike boots. I wanted them. And fair play to my mum and dad, they found a way and got me a pair. So um, nice one. Yeah, massive, massive fan.
3: Excellent. All right. Well, uh, you might enjoy our reflection specifically on his his inter years and and the bits around that. And it's uh, it's lovely to see that he's a very happy man now, by the looks of it. Um, yeah, uh, actually, Are you paying homage to his uh,
5: goal against Spartak Moscow on a non-pitch in 1998? Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes,
3: mm-hmm. that gets a mention. That oh, does get a mention.
5: Brilliant, brilliant skill on a pitch with no grass. It's unbelievable.
3: Yeah. <laughs> now, England Women News this week. Confirmation that uh, Hegar Riza will take charge of Team GB at this summer's Tokyo Olympics, as and when that occurs.
4: Yeah, it's been announced. I think it's... Um... You know, a smart... She, she's won the Olympics herself in 2000, so she's very accustomed to the competition, knows what it means and what it takes. So I think it's it's smart. I think she's kind of a neutral manager that, that can look over. And and yes, she is at the moment in charge of England temporarily, but I think she can sit back and, and pick the best squad needed for this competition. It is different because looking at it personally, I'm thinking you might not pick your best footballers and you might sit back and go, What? But you're only able to take a really, really small squad. So you might just take your most athletic A team players, actually, because the quick turnaround, you mm. can't carry players. So it's a, quite a strategic team that she'll have to pick. But I'm sure she's got really good advice and she knows all the nations that she can she can pick from. It'll be interesting who she takes.
3: Because you played in the, the Olympics in 2012 and you were just saying about how you, you grew up with a Brazil kit and that. You set up Steph Horton's goal in the 1-0 win over, over Brazil, no? Karen
2: Carney gives chase. Lovely sidestep to get out of the hole there. And in for Steph Horton. She couldn't score again, could she? Yes, she could! This is
3: incredible! Was that one of your all-time kind of career highlights?
4: Yeah, I think it is, to be honest. I think... Um, Because I've said it many times, it's every boy's dream to play at Wembley. But we got to play at Wembley, you know, nearly 80,000 people there when so many people told us, there's no interest in women's football. You'll never get a crowd. And we did it in 2012 and everyone loved it. And, um, you know, to beat Brazil is really weird because I think in the space of like a month or two, I'd played for England. There was quite a negative perception around it. And then I put my Great Britain kit on. And everyone was all over us. like It was like we were the celebrities everywhere. And it was just like, there was so much joy and passion around the 2012 team. Um, it, it was just amazing. And we beat Brazil. And then it was my birthday. So, because it was a late kickoff, I was on the bus and it turned like midnight and everyone sung me happy birthday. And I remember having my birthday in the Olympic Village, beating Brazil, playing in front of 80,000 people. I was like, I don't think you'll ever top that. Um, and there's, there's photos of like my family took of how high up they were like in the, like literally in the gods and it was just like you'd never known that that was me playing in that game and or it was even a male or a female game it was it just looked like a full packed stadium watching people play so it was just a brilliant experience and like I said it'll whoever goes will have the best time of their life because it is to be an Olympian is you, you, you take that very very seriously and you're you are I think you get a dog tag when you go so when you first get in um they give you a dog tag and you got a number on it and I think I was like 364 out of 515 that represented Great Britain out of 70, 80 million. so you know that stat is is ridiculous so whoever goes whoever Hegarisa picks from or four nations that you can go by, it will be an amazing experience.
3: Brilliant. All right. Well, unlikely to be crowds of 80,000 at the Games there, or indeed any crowds, sadly, but we'll see. A lot of question marks still surrounding the Tokyo Olympics, but it does seem set to be occurring this summer. That brings us to the end of today's Totally Football Show. Of course, we will return on Monday morning to review the weekend's activities and look ahead to another packed midweek of Champions League and Europa League action next time around. But for now, it's many thanks to Karen, to Duncan and to Sasha and producer Charlie and you, listener. Have a great weekend and we'll catch you on the other side.
2: You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of The Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on The Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power.
1: The Athletic.